I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. And joining me today is Jennifer Morozak Sukalo. Her book is Claim Your Swagger. Informed by her work with almost 50,000 leaders at various multinational and Fortune 500 companies, her experience with cancer survivors and her personal journey, Jennifer Sukalo's approach shows us what makes us not only new, unique, but extraordinary. Through her own heartfelt experiences made transparent and case studies of other genuine revelations and insights, she offers support and life advice to develop a new relationship with our self-worth and we learn to appreciate our strengths and limitation. Jennifer is a speaker, author, and transformational expert. She's the creator, founder, and CEO of Swaggeroo, a personal development approach to harnessing a person's untapped potential to become who they are meant to be. Her work as a global leadership consultant has reached nearly 50,000 leaders across uh, cultures, countries, industries. She's co-authored a study in the Journal of Physical Activity and Health and has been a contributing author for Prevention Magazine. Welcome to the show, Jennifer. Nice to have you here. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Swagger. Uh, We all want some swagger. I think most of us <laughs> somehow have difficulty getting to that point, but you're going to tell us how we can do that through, uh, obviously, your book. But when you talk about your book, uh, it's been described as that readers will have the opportunity to learn by doing. What does that mean? Well, I have a background in experiential learning. I've done a lot of work with the leaders that have in my global leadership days as a consultant and also in health and fitness. And people learn best, the research suggests that people learn best when they, when their voices are heard more than somebody else's, when they figure out the solution and answer on their own instead of being told what to do. And experiential learning is all about learning by doing or learning by experiencing. If you think about the Probably the strongest experiences or things that you remember most, the lessons you've learned in your life, chances are they were things that you learned not because of someone telling you the answer, but because you figured it out. And yeah, that's I think what that's I mean true. By and I think learning if you go back doing. to when you're a kid and your parents tell you not to do something and then you go and you do it and something yes. not bad happens, you realize, hey, you know, I shouldn't have done that, but you have to go through the experience yourself. Yeah, I think that's what you're that's talking right. about. That's right. Yeah. That's exactly right. So, okay. That's reading exactly your... right. Okay. So now what are we going to get from the book? Because you go through a lot of actually, you, you, you're you a cancer survivor yourself. Um, you've had a lot of different kinds of experiences and that you've adapted to and gone ahead and, you know, you have the swagger. So tell us how do we get it? Well, first I have to explain that swagger is actually an acronym. And so when you break the acronym down, it stands for self-worth, appreciation for your strengths and limitations, gratitude for how your life experiences have helped shape who you are, grounded in your core values, empowered to overcome your self-limiting beliefs, and renewed through a greater focus on your passion and purpose. And when you learn how to tap into and utilize what you already have, 
and do the work to develop that new relationship with your self-worth, to really understand what your strengths are and learn to manage your weaknesses, to really find gratitude for the good, the bad, and the ugly things that have happened in your life, and be really grounded in those core values and not just know what they are, but live them daily. When you can recognize when those self-limiting beliefs show up and how you can overcome them on a regular basis and not let them get in your way. And when you can really live daily your passion and purpose, that is when you claim your swagger. That is when that light just shines from within and people want to know whatever it is you're doing, they want to, they want to have some of it. Self-limiting beliefs. Let's, I mean, because I think that's the key word. I mean, I think most of us encounter that every single day. I can't do this because, or I shouldn't do this because, or whatever it is, right? So let's let's talk more about that. What are those self-limiting beliefs that that really keep us back? That don't allow us to uh, to engage in our swagger. Well, I think it's there. They're different for everybody. And the interesting thing that I found as I was writing the book is where they come from. And that was a big revelation for me in my research on this is that swagger, or I call them swagger limiting beliefs in the book, but they're self-limiting beliefs. And they really originate from a place of protection. So they start out in oftentimes young, young parts of our lives where They're trying to protect us from being hurt or damaged in some way. And then they continue through life. So these, the voice in your head, that talk track that goes over and over and over, I can't because, or you'll never be good enough, or how can anybody possibly love you? These things started as a place of protection. But now they, we don't need them anymore. And we need to be able to one, identify when they show up, what triggers them, and then how do we pivot those thoughts into a more productive track. So I like to call that technique doing reps, like reps, repetitions of exercise, recognize, evaluate, and pivot. And when you can start to recognize when these uninvited guests, as I've called them, start showing up, you can determine and say, thank you, I appreciate what you've done for me, but I don't need you anymore, and now you can go. And you start to reframe that message that you say to yourself, and then you're no longer being held back by them. I mean, I think that's critical. You know, the examples you gave, you know, you're not good enough, you're not smart enough, maybe you're not pretty enough, all of those kinds of things that you hear when you are, as you say, when you're younger. Uh, But what about the more, like, insidious ones that you're that Mm. are not quite as uh, they are just as damaging but maybe less you're able less able to recognize I mean I get it if you grow up in a family where they're telling you what I just said but uh there are more there are kind of hidden self-limiting I think beliefs No, I think you're right. And I think being able to recognize them is absolutely essential if you don't recognize when they're showing up you can't create the thought pattern change that's required to pivot into a more productive direction. And so sometimes it's becoming aware of how you're feeling and what happens with your body. So I, I use some examples in the, in the book around watching a 
in this case, uh, any sporting event, but specifically tennis matches are, you can literally see the changes in the body that take place when self-limiting beliefs are sabotaging that player. The body completely changes. Their shoulders kind of slump. Their energy kind of goes down. You see the whole body kind of take this downward momentum. So paying more attention and becoming really hypervigilant to what's going on and how you're feeling, sometimes people will get angry or your heart will race or you feel dejected. There are things that you can start to notice. If you don't recognize what's going on in your head necessarily, you can start to pay attention to what's happening with your body. The physical changes can be alerts and signals that something is going on. And then you can start to look at what triggered that, what caused that thought to come into my head, and how can I, when that I'm presented with that in the future, choose a different path. Case histories. You have case histories in the book. Can you talk about some of those specific examples? Sure. So one of the case histories that I talk about is in the gratitude chapter, and I talk about a woman. How do we find gratitude for even amid extreme loss in our lives? And she lost four babies in the course of two pregnancies managed to keep one who actually is now a teenager, miraculously, but it was the story of how she was able to not allow that or those events to define her, but to be able to still seek out and find joy in her life and be grateful for what she has instead of being, I guess, focusing so much on what she lost. And so that's just one example of some of the case studies that I share of people's real experiences and how we can learn from them and take something that we can then to apply to our own lives. That's one of being that being one of the examples, obviously, in the book. But then talk about your own life. I mean, you are a cancer survivor. You've uh, helped other cancer patients. Um, how were you able to do exactly what you uh, described that this woman who had lost these babies was able to do and, and, and have gratitude? So for me, I... The, one of the lowest moments, I, yes, I'm a cancer survivor. I use that term loosely because I feel that so many other people who are cancer survivors had such a worse experience or a more traumatic experience than I had, although I had skin cancer and it was on my face. So they cut on my face five times before they finally got it all out. And uh, I tend to use humor quite a bit. That's one of my coping mechanisms when I'm in difficult situations. And I remember joking with the staff because the nurse couldn't even look at me uh, when she came out the last time because she said, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry. We need to go back in. I go, what? I uh, just can't help myself, can I? I'm just that gift that keeps on giving. Yeah. And we were in the in the room as they were doing the last procedure, and it was around lunchtime, and I had been in there since probably the whole, pretty much the whole morning. I was the first patient in, and I said, is anybody ordering lunch? Because I'm a bit hungry. And by the time they finished sewing up that side of my face, it literally felt like I had a facelift. 
And I asked if they could do a little work on the other side so, you know, I could be even. And so we laughed and we joked. And for me, humor is one of my mechanisms that I tend to use in difficult situations. But it's truly about getting through the experience, feeling the feelings that you're going through, not suppressing, but at some point being able to look back and say, what have I learned? How have I grown? What's one thing that's happened as a result of that experience that I am truly grateful for today that may not have transpired had I not had that experience? And that's how we can start to look at and try and find gratitude for some of the difficult things that happen in our lives. I think if you start with the premise that difficult things happen to all of us in our lives, they may be different things, but I don't think one can go through life without having those difficult things happen, as you describe it. So it's how we react to it. And that's right. Right. And that's key. Uh, You know, some people do it really well, just kind of automatically. I don't know if automatic is the right word. Uh, and, and other people automatically don't. And probably most of us are somewhere in the middle on that bell-shaped curve, right? But uh, just being able to... I've always had difficulty with the word gratitude. Let's talk about that. Because I know it's used a lot and maybe it differently in, mm. in, in, uh, in your book, but I always thought of gratitude as like, do I have to be grateful for this? I don't want, and it's not really grateful that we're talking about. I don't want to be grateful. I want to be strong. I don't want to be the victim. I don't have to be grateful. Uh, you know, that's kind of my automatic response. So let's talk about the word well, gratitude. And, yeah. and the way that I look at gratitude and the way it's defined by a multitude of sources, but one of the ways that they define it is being appreciative for what you have. Gratitude is not about comparing yourself to others and telling yourself that they have it so much worse off than you. And it's also not about suppressing negative emotions and trying to replace them with positive ones. It's being appreciative for what you have. And I talk about gratitude in the book because of the power it holds. You can literally create an immediate and profound shift in your mindset by choosing to focus on gratitude. And I tell this story of this time I was in New York City and I was getting ready to deliver a a leadership workshop the next morning. And I go to bed quite early because I have to get up quite early to get ready for the day and prepared. And I had my earplugs in and I was ready for bed and I could not believe how loud it was. I mean, it was just incredibly noisy. And I was thinking to myself, complaining the whole time, does anybody care that I have to go to bed? Does anybody care that I have to get up early? Of course they don't care. They're not worried about me at all. And I stopped myself in that moment and I said, wait a minute, shouldn't I just be grateful that I can hear? And that immediately shifted my mindset into a much more productive path. So gratitude is incredibly powerful. I like, well, I like that example, but also the word appreciate, I I think that's really, to me, that, that makes it, that's, that's the word that I like to hear that makes me feel good. I appreciate, but not, and I know people do this a lot. I'm grateful. I'm grateful because I don't have cancer. I'm grateful because I have more money than you. That's not what we're talking about. Although I think often that's what that word is kind of translate, you know, they translate that into, you know, that kind of, 
description of what grateful means. So appreciate, appreciate, as you just said, appreciate that you can hear. That's a good example. That's right. Yeah. And one to follow. Okay. So, well, you have a lot of things. Just per, I like to get into the personal because you have a lot of things to appreciate. <laughs> I mean, you... <laughs> Uh, you know, besides writing the book and talented and um, also uh, there was one thing that was that I guess it was in the description of what you've done, your your bio, but you've been a guest instructor for Sir Latab um, culinary yeah. classes. Well, ha- tell us, what does that have to do with what you're doing with Swagger? Well, it's about living one of my passions. I love cooking. I would I'm what you would call a self-trained chef. Uh, and I l- love creating in the kitchen. It's one of my outlets. And so I decided that I wanted to be able to share that with others and help people gain confidence in the kitchen. Many people are afraid to cook because they're afraid that they make mistakes, but it doesn't matter. You can always have takeout if it doesn't turn out. But I, I went and I auditioned uh, and I was accepted. And I did some cooking classes for one of the stores when I lived in Scottsdale, Arizona. And I hosted cooking classes at my house at the time as well, trying to help people build some self-confidence and self-assurance by learning how to do some things and succeeding in the kitchen. So you touched on something else, which I think is really important. And you talk about this passion, having a passion for something mm. and being able to ha- to to follow that passion, uh, just which, as you described, and gain self-confidence. That's critical. I mean, we all can tell us. OK, so when you had to audition, what did, what did you have to do? I had to prepare a recipe. I had to talk through the recipe. I had to prepare it. I had to demonstrate in front of the person who was uh, the head of the auditions and uh, be able to demonstrate not only my skills, my culinary skills, but also my ability to communicate and educate and help people through the dish that I was preparing. So I literally had to do a mock class around whatever dish I was preparing. Growing up, what would you say your self-limiting behaviors, you know, what evolved from from your childhood, let's say, because you've certainly, I don't know if the word is overcome them, but understood them, are aware of them and gone on. So, uh, you know, kind of share with that, like your, um, your, your childhood, well, you know, what, are some of those issues or self-limiting behaviors that got in your way? Well, I like to tell people that I'm a recovering perfectionist and probably will be my whole life. And that started at a very young age. So I do talk about this in the book. I was really young and I acquired severe test anxiety at a very young age, which stuck with me all through my younger years of school, all the way through college And I learned how to cope with that. I created coping mechanisms, which is one of the reasons why I use acronyms a lot, because one of my coping mechanisms was to memorize everything. I could tell you exactly what page and what part of the page a piece of information was on. So I trained my brain to be able to memorize information. And that was one of my coping mechanisms. I was able to get over the initial 
I used to get physically ill the night before a test. I got so worried about tests. And I got through that over time. I was able to overcome the physical aspects of it. And now, talk about gratitude, now I can look back and say, I'm so appreciative that I've had that experience because it has helped me in countless areas of my life. As a global leadership consultant, having to know and be able to facilitate in a room full of leaders, know the objectives and the activities and be able to talk through what we had to talk through without notes, I had to memorize a lot. I had to learn a lot, and my brain was readily available to help me with that because of some of my past experiences. So that is probably one of the biggest ones, the need and still that feeling of if I'm not perfect, then I shouldn't bother, and not allowing that to get in my way, to realize that I can continue to progress as I go. It doesn't have to be perfect the first time around. And that was really important for me in writing the book because I would stare at the blank computer screen, unable to write the first part of a chapter if it didn't come out right, until I started to allow myself to just write and get my thoughts on the page and realize I could change them, I could delete them, I could do whatever I needed to with them, but just get the thoughts out. So that is one that I have probably will always be managing my entire life. You took, yeah, well, it's not written in stone. You, yeah, and how long did it take you to write the book? Well, I was able to, I started thinking about the concept, I think back in 2000, I want to say like 2008, I think I wrote in the book, is when I initially thought about the concept for the book. And originally it started for cancer survivors because I really wanted to help cancer survivors see cancer as the spark that creates the rest of their life instead of something they survive. And as I began writing and I had some people reacting to my early work, they said, this is much bigger than cancer survivors because we've all survived something. You're writing a survivor's book for everyone, not just cancer survivors. And once I believe my book proposal was accepted by the publisher in February of last year, and I finished my rough draft by July of that year. Now, so it was it was pretty focused work once I got the book proposal approved. Once you got into it. Uh, now, as I understand it also, you have Arabian horses. You live in Connecticut, right? Yes. And yes. Uh, yeah, and that somehow, and I want to know how, uh, they keep you humble and grounded. Mm. Uh, they They are some of the best teachers I have ever had as it relates to... Being a leader, a leader of others, but also a leader of self. And if you are paying attention, you can learn just incredible amounts by engaging with them. One of the biggest things they teach, they've taught me over the years, is being present, being completely present in the moment. You can't be thinking about anything else. You have to be in that moment because that requires all of your energy and all of your attention because they're looking to you to be the calm, confident leader. And if you aren't the calm, confident leader, then they get worried. 
and they wonder what they should be worried about. And that creates a whole different dynamic in the relationship. And also, they look to you for direction. One of the other biggest things that I love, and the trainers have also helped me this, line of travel. If you do not know where you're going, the horse doesn't know where it's going because it's looking to you for that direction. So it will just wander and go wherever it wants because you have decided to stop leading. And I think it's very akin to our own lives. If we don't know where we're headed, any road will take us there. We will go in a million directions and in circles, but are we really getting to a place that's productive, that's helpful, that's rewarding and fulfilling? Well, so I think that's there's yeah, so it's much true you that you can't, if you don't know where you're going or you don't have a goal or a place to go, then you can't get there. <laughs> that's true. That's I right. mean, yeah, you definitely do. But as you're describing, we only have a few, a couple minutes left, actually. But I just wanted to respond to that example you gave of, of, of the horses. It's true of children, too. I think, you, you know, yeah. you, if you want to stay grounded, you want to stay confident because they pick up just like animals do on your feelings and your emotions and uh, yeah, makes a huge difference in their behavior. Um, Okay. So a couple minutes left, tell us, cause you're doing all of these things and uh, where can we follow you online uh, as well? You know, and where can we get the book? And uh, as I said, follow you online in terms of work that you're doing. Sure. So I'm on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, as well as Twitter. Uh, And Swagger U is short for Swagger University. So people can find me at SwaggerU.com. And if you do SwaggerU.com, then that's the letter U, not spelling out Y-O-U. It's SwaggerU.com forward slash books. And they can go there. They can get the book. There's a multitude of links. They can choose whichever is their preference. I've even included uh, one of our local bookstores here to support our local businesses here in that where I live in Connecticut. So there's a multitude of places to find me and my Instagram profiles and all of my other uh, profiles will have a link to my media, what's going on in the media as, as well. So there's multiple places to to find me and keep track. Terrific. Great talking to you today. Thank you so much. Lots of great information. We really appreciate it. And I emphasize the word appreciate it. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, Jennifer Rosek Sukalo. Have a good day. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. And you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. (laughs) 